Welcome, everyone. This is your host, Adam Coleman. And with me today, we have Michael Sherman. He's a certified financial planner, a CPA, and a certified divorce financial analyst, along with being the founder of Sherman Wealth Solutions here in Charlotte. Today, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the role of a certified divorce financial analyst, kind of determine what their role is in the divorce process and kind of how it differs from a traditional financial advisor. So, Michael, thanks for being here. Adam, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, before we begin, tell us a little bit about yourself and what made you decide to go into not only financial planning, but specifically divorce financial planning as well. Sure. Unfortunately, it's not a, a great first uh, story, but my mom passed away when I was four and just seeing what my dad uh, went through was kind of my catalyst to becoming a financial planner, making sure everything was up to par and going forward with that with people's finances. So that's really why I got into business. And the divorce aspect came into the business when it was basically, I, I was struggling young advisor trying to get clients and I had an interesting client come through the door and she was going through a divorce and you're getting her at the, probably the worst time in her life. And just throughout the years, I've just been able to see her grow and kind of build her up through the divorce process and make sure, hey, you can do this. You know, we can do everything that we need to do to make sure you're going to get through this and strive in life. So that really helped me become, hey, I need to really think about what I'm doing in this career. And this is a great aspect or avenue to go down to help people build them up. Nice. Well, tell us a little bit about your role in that divorce process. When do you typically get involved and when does your role actually get finalized? Is it just during the divorce process or do you typically work with people afterwards as well? Great question. Generally, I like to talk to them before the divorce process even starts, just to make sure they have their ducks in a row. Uh, I always recommend that they see an attorney first and then come talk to me. And then after they talk to their attorney and get legal advice, we'll start talking about their financial items. But sometimes during the collaborative process, I'll come into the, at the middle of the process because they, they realize we need a financial guy to come take a look at tax returns, make sure everything's there, create uh, a custom standard of living, or just run different scenarios for them from a financial plan uh, perspective. That kind of a segue to what I was going to ask is, I know you handle a lot of the traditional wealth management clients. How does your role on the divorce side differ from more comprehensive financial planning? Does it get into any different items on the divorce cases specifically? Yes. Instead of planning for one family unit, you're now planning for two. And the reason I love collaborative is there's nobody's hiding anything. Like we can really come up with a good plan for people who really want to go through this process and utilize all the arrows in our equipment. So to answer your question, it is different. I would say a lot of it is you got to do an accustomed standard of living for potentially three years, five years, whatever the attorneys deem necessary. That's a big difference than general financial planning, where you might help build a budget for one year and kind of let the clients take the reins after that. Like we really go back in time and figure out what the standard of living was for the, the couple. That's one area. The asset chart is another area. It's not much different than a personal financial statement. You need to know when there's date of separation, date of marriage, how long everything was happening for coverture features and whatnot. But that's another area that is a little different than general financial planning. But there's a lot of aspects of financial planning that go into this as well, as you want to make sure 
whatever um, alimony or some child support is needed is going to be built into your plans for the, um, the spouse that's receiving it. And then for tax items, hey, we should we run a tax projection for both spouses, which I always recommend to see where we're at. So it, it, it's an all-encompassing thing. I just I think it's a little different than just being a general financial planner, but there's definitely some overlap. Do you tend to use the same software on the divorce cases versus your financial planning cases, or do you tend to use two different ones? Great question. I actually pretty much use similar softwares. I think I get a little bit more crazy with Excel because I like to create a pivot table to kind of make sure that I know where numbers are coming from for the accustomed standard of living because an attorney might be like, how'd you get that number, Mike? And I got a point right to it. <laughs> so that will help me kind of figure out we're not building any fat into this budget. We're, we're using actual numbers. Do you get a lot of pushback from the attorneys when it comes to that, where they're trying to basically use their numbers that they want to come up with and they don't like the idea of using a financial planner's numbers or are they typically pretty receptive to your role? I mean, with my pivot table, there's really no hiding anything. These are the numbers like, hey, you know, some people might have some changes like for gifts or recreation after the after the divorce is finalized. But at the end of the day, those are the numbers. We do use some estimates. If there's a new household, uh, we have to estimate repairs and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like those are the numbers. Sometimes I get a little bit of pushback, but I'm calling it as I see it. You mentioned collaborative, and we've talked about that on a number of episodes on this show. Uh, basically, we're talking about collaborative divorce, which is a different type of divorce process where you have really a full team environment where you're working together, uh, much more amicable situation, not a litigation situation. Your role in that is a little bit different than the CDFA in some cases. So maybe share with us a little bit about what it means to be a financial neutral versus maybe in a non-collaborative case where you're not necessarily always in neutral? Sure. No, that's a great question. Being a financial neutral, it's it's great because you have both sides asking you questions and you have to do what's best. They're asking for your opinion. They know you're neutral. They can share items with you and there's nothing hidden from the group. We're trying to do what's best for this couple. They made the decision not to go through litigation. So we're going to all kind of come together and they definitely still have their attorney advocates on both sides, but I'm just there to make sure, Hey, does this make financial sense? Yeah. You might be able to barely afford it, but then you're going to have no emergency fund or something like that. So it's good just having that other set of eyes or, Hey, should you be doing this or because you're not going to get the child tax credit anymore if you claim this child. So it's kind of just being able to help both sides, I think really helps for a good process. No, absolutely. And you brought up a lot of these things before, but obviously everybody's a little bit different in this industry. You have CDFAs or Certified Divorce Financial Analysts. A lot of them play different roles in this, and some of them have no wealth management, financial planning background. Obviously, you do. Where do you see the differences between those roles? Obviously, you, know, you do very similar things on both. You incorporate a lot of your financial planning skills and experience into the process. How do you see that different than somebody that really strictly just does divorce cases for you know, equitable distribution of assets, things like that? I think the main benefit of my background is actually the CPA from the tax perspective, because items will come up like if you have to sell the 
marital residence. Like, how do we do that? What's the best thing to do? Hey, this person's been living outside the house for X amount of years. If they do sell it and there's a large capital gain, are they going to be subject to net investment income tax? And just making sure we're planning for that. I would say that's kind of the main difference for me, having my financial planning background going into divorce planning. That's really helped because I'm able to provide that advice in those meetings where somebody who's just running numbers based off an asset chart might not be able to do that. And that, that last statement brings up a, a good point, especially North Carolina, where you have that one-year separation period. What do you see as the main issue with people if somebody vacates the house and doesn't live, live there? What are the main tax implications that people have to keep in mind as it comes to capital gains if they do end up selling that marital home? Yeah, there's an ownership requirement and there's a residency requirement. So just being on top of that is extremely important. I would also say you need to be careful on contributions to 401ks and IRAs after date of separation. Those will be added back into your spouse's column if they're the ones contributing to that. Or if you're contributing to that, those are your contributions. So there's just certain things that you just need to make sure you're aware of and not caught off guard when you, you have those data separations in there. Are these the types of things that you kind of go over before they go through the divorce process or kind of during, I guess, of the early stages? Or does that come up, unfortunately, too late in the process and half the time when you get involved? No, it depends when I get involved. And again, that's more legal side of things. I'll tell them I'll be able to trace back like, hey, they made these amount of contributions. These were the passive earnings on those accounts during this time based off what they provided me on the statements. But generally, I would say you need to get legal counsel involved. And then I come into play, I, hopefully after they talk to legal counsel. And then, you know, if I'm involved in the middle of the, the case, that they'll be able to provide me whatever I need to kind of make sure I'm giving them good financial advice. On the, the vacating house scenario, where let's say the wife plans on keeping the house and the husband moves out for the year, if they were living in the house for several years before then, does that impact the capital gains, the, the capital gains exclusion that they would get if they were to sell the house? So it's interesting. Basically, if one of them, let's just pretend one of them had ownership and they didn't live there and they were separated yeah. without any kind of separation agreement. Okay. Uh, and then one spouse lived there for four years or whatever amount. So during the divorce proceeds, the attorneys could allocate the house to the spouse that lived there because they fit the residency requirement. And that's the mm -hmm. key thing there because they'll get the other spouse's ownership period, which is extremely important because then they're going to be able to exclude some of the capital gain on the sale of the house. Does that, Does that give them the question? full? Yeah, I think so. Does that give them the full? If they do it as part of the divorce and they're still married... Would they still get the full exclusion like with the $500,000 capital gains exclusion, or does it vary? it vary? It depends on the situation. I can't give you a blanket answer without, I got to give my right, tax right. disclaimer I was just here. curious <laughs> if, if that came up where that's something that people need to pay attention to, especially on the front end. It, that's It's kind of illustrating an example of why it's important to get somebody like yourself that has the tax planning piece involved uh, earlier rather than later, because especially in North Carolina, where you do have that separation period, it does kind of throw a wrench in things that uh, maybe other states don't have that issue with as well. So. Yeah. And another area I just want to bring up quickly is rental properties. You know, if you own a rental property, just watch out for 
depreciation recapture because a lot of people don't think about that when they get a rental property and then sell it soon after the divorce. That's one thing you got to just be very careful about. There's tons of tax hits that people just don't consider. And, you know, the attorneys, you know, God bless them. That's not their role. Like they, they don't know a lot of that stuff. So they're not going to be able to give you the advice that somebody like yourself could actually come in and tell them. So, yeah. And that's kind of what you alluded to earlier with one of the, the areas you can go down, the avenues you could go down is litigation. And sometimes my role in those litigation cases is to throw tax bombs at the other side and see if they find them. And I mean, that's right. a part of my job that I don't particularly enjoy, but it's like, you need to do what's best for your client. And that's what you were hired to do. do. Do you find yourself doing mostly collaborative divorce cases, or do you end up getting involved in litigation or mediation, things like that more often as well? I would say I'm 95% collaborative because I just enjoy, I don't like throwing tax bombs. I like everybody to be happy and come out with a good solution. Um, I would say 95% of it is collaborative. Nice. Well, you, you've given a lot of good advice already, but any other high level advice for somebody that may be starting down the divorce path, like what should their first few steps be, do you think? I would find somebody that they respect that's gone through a divorce and probably three people and look, ask them for what attorney they used and go have a consult with that attorney. Just say, hey, I, I'm just thinking about going this path is what should I do? And they'll be able to advise you on different options. That would be the first route. I, I, I hate to say go get legal advice first, but I, I think that's the best course of action. Uh, once they do that, they might think it's prudent for me to come on board to look at statements and I could look at stuff. Hey, these are these stocks have low basis. You might have a high capital gain if you were to sell these in a divorce. We can look at potentially doing a financial plan based off a potential settlement later down the process where we can add in Roth conversions if they get a 401k or an IRA that we need to look into. And let's just pretend they're not making that much money. And then one thing that I really love is if somebody's got an HSA and one spouse needs to go on COBRA, they can actually take money from that HSA and not pay taxes on it because there's a provision for COBRA uh, for HSA. So that's a huge benefit for somebody getting divorced and you get 36 months of COBRA you could take out of an HSA. That's all good stuff. It brings up another question. I've had this question pop up before where, you know, what do you do on health insurance? And you mentioned the COBRA. Are there other scenarios that you see as viable options besides having to deal with COBRA? Because I know that's not the cheapest route in the world. Are there through the Affordable Care Act? Is that what you're seeing people do if you know, one spouse was relying on the other spouse for health insurance? This is a great question because this is a primary concern of mine when people go through a divorce and let's just say they're, they're not in the workforce currently. Uh, I would totally recommend that you get quotes from the exchange. And also, you might be part of organizations that in the past that offer group health insurance plans, and you might just need to re-up with those organizations. And anytime you can get insurance through a group plan, I, I generally recommend it unless you need it personally. Um, I, that's another area I would consider, but I would absolutely look at the exchange, talk to a health insurance broker and have them shop around and see what they can get for you. 
And correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of those are income-based calculations to determine how the premiums are. So that's another thing where you can get involved and maybe get creative with how their income is structured to where they may qualify for one versus the other. If they didn't have somebody like yourself involved, they might just be thrown into whatever plan is available because of how the attorney structured their alimony or child support. Absolutely. They could potentially get a premium tax credit as well, depending on their income. Nice. Okay. Well, we've talked about, obviously, the attorney, you as the financial advisor. What else, what other team members do you like to get involved in the divorce process just to make sure that they have a good, strong divorce team? I love getting a divorce coach involved. I think they do a great job of managing the meetings, managing all the emotional stuff. Like you come to me for the financial stuff and for the more of the emotional side of things, you need somebody who's there that's going to help them with these issues that they're working through personally. And the divorce coach is invaluable when it comes to those items. So I would absolutely recommend a divorce coach as well. And that's something unique that a lot of people don't even realize is is available and they don't know the role either. Collaborative obviously makes that a different role than what some people might think. Like they are almost steering the ship in a lot of cases. They're the central hub. And then the attorneys are obviously getting involved. You're getting involved. You know, people like me or real estate agents are sometimes getting involved as well. Do you get them involved on non-collaborative cases? Do you see them getting brought in a lot of times on those? Or is it more a function of the collaborative process? I think it's more a function of the collaborative process. I could be wrong. I just deal mostly with collaborative stuff. So that's kind of my thought process. But again, they're a great addition to the team. Invaluable. Yeah. No, and I see that a lot. And I, I know tons of coaches that do get involved in non-collaborative. And I think it's a great resource for sure, because a lot of people don't have anybody on that emotional side of things. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure you and the attorneys and me can try to do as good of a job, but we're not there to handle the emotional side of things. We're, we're definitely more on the attorney or financial side. So I think it's definitely good to have somebody on that emotional side of things to to help. And they do things that are completely different than what a therapist does. So you, you can have both, obviously, but that's definitely good advice. Well, you've spoken a lot to the collaborative side of things. Obviously, that's kind of your preference. Do you like any of the other versions of the divorce process? Obviously, I think we all agree that we want to stay away from the litigation as much as we can. But um, are there situations where you don't think collaborative is really the best option for some people? Yeah, I mean, I I think that like litigation, you might need to go through litigation if you think that this is the best avenue for you to go down. If you have a spouse that you don't think is going to commit to the process of collaborative and you need somebody who's going to be your advocate, who's going to go turn out all the stones that you need turned and go down that route. I think that litigation is good for some people. I hate to say good for some people, but it's a necessary thing to make sure they get what they're entitled to based off the law. You know, I don't. I, I think the attorneys do a good job of saying we're not going to promise you the the stars, but like this is the this is what we could get, and going through that amount, and hopefully it comes out in a settlement rather than going to court. But that's, that's my take on it is collaborative is not for everybody. And it, it really depends on the spouses and the couple. So litigation's an option. If they decide to litigate and go through mediation, I think mediation is also great because then you bring in somebody who's got experience that can help you solve issues. So you don't have to go to litigation. 
So I'm a big proponent of mediation if they do decide to go the litigation route. Do you get involved in the mediation side still as a neutral or are you typically advocating for one party or the next? It's been kind of interesting because I will generally get called by the mediator uh, and ask me questions for both sides, not just one side. So that's been interesting, but sometimes I'll get involved a little bit, but it hasn't been a big part of my business so far. One thing I meant to ask earlier, obviously traditional financial advisors, fee structures are all over the map with how people get paid. I think the traditional concept that people have is like, they're managing my money. They're going to charge me a percent of that. Obviously fee structures on the divorce side are totally different. So how is that set up for your work as a CDFA? Great question. Generally, it's just an hourly charge. So basically, whatever I'm doing, it's just a billable to them. And I send out all my bills monthly uh, to the client. And both parties receive the bill. Both parties are responsible for the bill. If they don't pay the bill, then we have to withdraw from the case. Uh, but that's pretty much how it's done. Some people might take on flat fees. It really depends on the clients and the attorneys on on that front and the CDFA professional as well, as they might have a different view on it, uh, but generally an hourly charge. Okay, perfect. So yeah, in flat fee, I feel like that would be very difficult because just as well as anybody, these divorce cases are obviously very personalized and specific. They're, they're very different from another divorce case. So I'm assuming you've seen where sometimes they take a few hours and then other times they take you know, 10, 20, 30 hours. I'll start with the whole flat fee thing first. The great thing about the Charlotte Collaborative Divorce Professionals is we've got a lot of great professionals on all sides of the table for that. So we might get somebody who doesn't have the means to pay an entire team. And just in the spirit of collaborative, everybody will come together and be like, hey, this is what I'm going to charge. I'm going to lower my rate to make sure that this couple is able to go through the collaborative process. And I've gotten several emails about that. And I'm always happy to lower my rate to do that because I'm committed to the process. Well, no, this has been good. Any other high-level advice for somebody thinking about going down that path? I would say trust your professionals, interview everybody, um, get everybody on board. And if you don't go down the collaborative path, make sure you talk to your financial advisor and your CPA and get their opinion that there are some fiduciary things that they'll have to do. But at the same time, like it's good to get their, their opinion on, can you provide me statements? Can you, if I file married filing separately, what does that look like? If I file head of household, what does that look like getting tax projections done? So those are things that I would recommend that you do. Perfect. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. If anybody wants to learn more about you and your services, what's the best way to find you? Sure. You can go to my website, shermanws.com, or you can email me at michael.sherman at shermanws.com. Perfect. I'll make sure to include that as well on the description. Michael, it's been a great pleasure. I appreciate you sharing some insights here. Adam, thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Thanks, Michael. Thank you.